Well, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And you know what? I believe it. I want to introduce you to my friends, Owen and Kara. And this picture just has a thousand words to it. There's a thousand words about their story of coming together. And there's a thousand words about their beautiful day together. But there's also, if you zero in on their wedding party, (laughs) expressions that you've got to wonder, what are they thinking? I love this woman here on the left who looks maybe just a bit scandalized as this couple goes in for this picture. The girl next to her, maybe just a little bit hopeful and seeing what's going to happen. That gentleman in the center, I'm not sure what he's thinking. It looks like maybe he's just not really sure what's going to happen here. The next person looks like maybe they just tuned in to what was going on. And I love this guy on the right. He has his mouth wide open, kind of like someone watching a Hail Mary pass to see if it gets completed. I don't know what they are thinking, but they are probably thinking a lot of things. Today we're going to start this new series called Love, Sexuality, and the Body. And I wonder what you're thinking as we begin this series. No doubt you have a lot of questions on this issue. We're living in a day and time where there are lots of very uh, deeply held opinions and beliefs about this, but also very real and honest questions. And even within the church, there is that very same thing going on. There's lots of people who have uh, thoughts and opinions and beliefs, but also deep questions and questions they want to see addressed. Now, it seems like any discussion about love, sexuality, and the body has the potential to turn into an explosive argument. And maybe there's a reason for that. This issue hits each and every one of us very close to home. There's not a single one of us who do not find ourselves in all kinds of relationships or perhaps wanting out of relationships or or desperately wanting to be in relationships. And, And these issues of love, sexuality, and the body find a home really close to our own hearts. This topic raises a bunch of questions. What is love? What are relationships for? How should we understand our sexuality? How do we understand our bodies and what they are for? What are people for? And why do we exist? Is there any meaning or purpose to life? Why is there something rather than nothing? You see, whenever we talk about issues of love and sexuality and the body. We go from very intimate questions to big worldview kind of questions very quickly. And so we're going to seek to address a number of these. And so we're going to call our study today, Where Angels Fear to Tread. Actually, that's not the right slide. I thought I deleted that. Let me just take a moment while I have this slide up here to say, I know that this is a very touchy subject. I know for many of us, we carry deep wounds around this issue, and I understand that. I've actually taught a series like this on multiple occasions before, and I feel like this time I approach it with much more fear and trembling, just because I've been privileged to hear so many people's stories about their own brokenness, their own sense of shame that revolves around these issues, and hopes and dreams as well. And so I want to approach this with a certain amount of fear and trembling, but also with hope because I think that God can work in and through the very text that we're going to look at and the questions that we raise and the answers that we seek. Let me just say as well, I am not so naive to to think that the church has a voice on this. I know that in many ways we have lost our voice. There has been scandal after scandal after scandal of leading preachers, 
religious leaders who have abused their power and have preyed on others. I know that when people hear Christians speak on this issue, they think hypocrites first and foremost. And I understand that. And I'm aware of that. And so I am humbled and grieved by that. But nevertheless, I believe that we need to dial back in on Jesus and have our lives reset on what he has to say. So we're going to call our study today, In the Beginning, There Was Love. And we're actually going to start our series looking at a text from the life of Jesus in which Jesus was asked what seems like a very provocative question as people try to draw him into a debate. But it's going to be a starting point for us and and really kind of a guiding question I want us to have as we go through these next eight weeks together is what does it mean to follow Jesus when it comes to love, sexuality, and the body? No doubt everyone has an opinion about this and strong beliefs. But what we want to do is say, what does Jesus think about this issue? And how, how can we grow in our understanding of him and what it means to follow him no matter what? And so with that as an introduction, let's just pause and pray before we look at these words of Jesus and ask God by his spirit to work in each and every one of our lives. Lord, as we come together this day and open up the scriptures, we do so seeking answers, seeking clarification, seeking address to our own pain and confusion around these very issues. Lord, if we went around this room, each and every one of us could tell stories of beauty and brokenness around this topic of love, sexuality, and the body. And so guide us, we pray. Help us to understand what Jesus has to say and how he wants us to orient our lives around him. Meet us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And this is how the apostle, this evangelist, this biographer of the life of Jesus, introduces this section of his Gospel. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The Pharisees. We've met them before as we studied the scriptures. These were the religious leaders of the day. They thought if they could just get everyone to get pure and serious about God, then God would send his kingdom. It's not surprising to know that there were different camps within the Pharisees, and there are two camps around this issue. And we're going to revisit this question later on in our series. But they ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? One school of the Pharisees said, yes, it is lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason, any cause. That mirrored the culture around them. And it's really kind of shocking to see that there are some Pharisees who believe this. But there was another group of Pharisees who said, no, there's only one reason. And so they're actually trying to draw Jesus into their debate. And this is how he answered them. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. In giving this answer, Jesus quotes from the first chapter of Genesis And the second chapter of Genesis. He takes them back to a story. A story about humanity. 
and answering their question. And we're going to go back to that same story as well. Because Jesus wants us to connect love, sexuality, and the body to our creator. And so that's going to be our premise as we go through this series. What we think about love, sexuality, and the body begins with what we believe about God. These things are very intimately connected. And they should be for the follower of Jesus. But even for a person who doesn't follow Jesus or doesn't believe that God exists, this issue is tied to beliefs about ultimate reality. And so, in taking us back to the beginning, Jesus is immersing us in a story. And for good reason. We make sense of our lives by stories. If we get together and have a coffee and we don't know each other, we get to know each other by telling stories about our lives. Leslie Newbigin, the missionary and author, said, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? And every human being, whether they would articulate it like this or not, is seeking to understand themselves in light of a larger story. And so Jesus takes us back to those opening words in the book of Genesis. And Genesis begins with that wonderful line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of this story that God is writing about himself and humanity, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. And as Jimmy and Jana read through Genesis chapter 1, we saw that this chapter is filled with all sorts of binaries. There's the heavens and the earth. Light and darkness, evening and morning, day and night, water and land, male and female. And so the first point I want to make from our text this morning is this. God's creation of gendered bodies was part of God's original design for humanity. God's creation of gendered bodies, male and female, was a part of God's original design for humanity. In verse 26, we saw these words. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That word man is the Hebrew word Adam, which becomes the personal proper name of Adam. But it's a general word that simply means humanity. Let us make humanity in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I know someone has the objection that goes like this. Hey, you can't speak of gendered bodies People may be biologically male or female, but gender refers to a person's internal sense of who they are. Let me just say, I understand this is a legitimate objection that people raise. Sex and gender used to be synonymous, but now those have been separated. So that by and large in our culture, sex simply refers to what you are biologically and gender refers to an internal sense of who you are. And so we have, for example, a word like gender dysphoria. Preston Sprinkle in his book, Embodied, 
transgendered identities, the church, and what the Bible has to say, brings up this issue. And he says, gender dysphoria is a psychological term for the distress some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex. In other words, the person may have a male body, but their internal sense is distorted from that, or the term is not in congruence with that external sense. And so let me just say, if you struggle with this, I want you to know that you are welcome here. You're among people who are learning what it means to be human, who are seeking to understand what God has to say about our humanity, who are wanting to to learn what it means to follow Jesus and what he has to say about these very issues. I know that there is much brokenness around this issue of sexuality. And I know for some people, that brokenness extends to a disconnect between what their physical bodies are saying and what their internal sense of self is saying. And so if, if that describes you, I want you to know that you are welcome here. And if you would want to share your story with me, I would love to hear it. I would love to learn what it means to walk with you through this this confusing area of gender dysphoria. Having said that, this word gender at its root means something. Christopher West's book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, explains it like this. The root gen, in that word gender, the root gen from which we get words such as generous, generate, genesis, genealogy, progeny, gender, and genitals, means to produce or to give birth to. A person's gender, therefore, is based on the manner in which that person is designed to generate new life. A person's gender is determined by the kind of genitals he or she has. While the sexual and feminist revolutionaries of the 20th century were right to challenge certain roles conventionally limited to one or the other gender, there are only two roles, one belonging to only to men and the other only to women, that are irreplaceable and absolutely indispensable for the survival of the human race, fatherhood and motherhood. Christopher West goes on to explain that there is a connection a gender-genitals-generation link that God has implanted within humanity. Rob Smith, the lecturer in theology and ethics, puts it like this. Human males grow into men and potentially husbands and fathers. And human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers. Indeed, it is this set of binary connections that makes human marriage possible. So here's a key point. When Jesus refers to God making humans male and female from the beginning, we need to hear him saying that it was God's idea to create male and female bodies. And let me say, say, I I know there's all kinds of questions that are popping up in your mind around this issue. And if you have those, go ahead and write them down, and I'll seek to do my best to address those in the Q&A. But for the first point, let's just remember that, that Jesus takes us back to the beginning. Here's the second point. When God created humanity as male and female, God declared it to be very good. We heard those words at the end of chapter 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When God looked at 
the stars and the oceans teeming with fish and the skies filled with birds and the anim- and land filled with animals. And when he looked at the creation of our first primal parents, Adam and Eve, he looked at everything and he declared it not just simply good, but very good. I think the psalmist was reflecting on this when he wrote Psalm 139 and said, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Philip James Bailey once wrote, Let every man think himself an act of God. That's powerful to stop and think about. Let every man, let every woman, let every person think of himself or herself, themselves as an act of God. That means, my friends, you are not an accident. That means, my friends, you are not the result of chaos plus chance. That means that you are an intentional act of God. And however many questions we have about what God did in creating us or for what purpose, understand that you are here today because the almighty, powerful creator of the universe willed to bring you into existence, into an embodied existence. And someone says, I feel like my body is at war with me. It doesn't feel good. I know some of you probably feel like this, and probably all of us have felt like this at different times and occasions. I have friends who, who experience chronic pain. I have friends who, who've battled addictions their whole lives. I have friends who, who feel like their body is constantly breaking down. I just had surgery on my shoulder and elbow a month or so ago. I'm thankful for that opportunity to have that repaired, but, but sometimes these bodies just can't be repaired. And it feels like, outwardly at least, we're wasting away. And let me just say, I think that that's a natural expression of feelings in a world like ours right now. But to quote Jesus in the context from the passage earlier, from the beginning it was not so. Our bodies were not meant to break down like they do. They were not meant to experience addictions and the pain and suffering we now currently experience in this world. And so let me just call you to understand that originally God designed us and he called us good, very good indeed. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, said this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here the Apostle Paul, he says, we join with creation. As creation itself groans, we groan as well. And writing to these Christians, he says, you've been given the first fruits of the Spirit and we await our adoption as sons. That's not a sexist comment there. Adoption of sons, sons were given inheritance rights in that culture. And he says, look, we have an inheritance, whether you're a male or female, as we look for the redemption of our bodies. And so our bodies were created good and declared by God very good. But we live in this fallen, broken world that groans. And we groan as well as we await the redemption of our bodies. 
And so here's another key point. Our bodies are good, even if they are imperfect. Our bodies matter because they matter to God. Perhaps one of the best endorsements of the goodness of bodies is the fact that Jesus Christ himself took on a human body. We celebrate this every year at the time of Christmas, of God himself becoming one of us as he took on human flesh. Sam Albury, in his book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, said these words. Jesus' incarnation, that is when he took on flesh, Jesus' incarnation is the highest compliment the human body has been paid God not only thought our bodies up, he made one for himself. Bodies matter. Jesus couldn't become a real human person without one. And we can't hope to enjoy an authentic life without one either. That his body matters is proof that mine and yours does too. He became what he valued enough to redeem. So the incarnation speaks of the goodness, not simply of matter, but of human bodies. God took one on himself in the person of Jesus. And he also rose bodily from the dead. Yes, God allowed himself to be crucified on that cross in the person of Jesus. But three days later, he rose again bodily from the grave. And even Thomas, one of his disciples, when he heard the news that Jesus had come back from the dead, didn't believe it. And then Jesus appeared and said, here, touch my wounds. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas fell before him and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus rose in a physical body. I love what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, That some kind of body is going to be given to us, even in heaven, and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. So it's important for us to remember that in taking us back to the beginning, Jesus wants us to see that our biological bodies are meaningful, not accidental. God wanted us to have physical bodies. You are your body. You are more than your body. You're a body and soul joined together, but you are not less than your body. And that's the way that God designed for us to experience life in this world. Sam Albury in that book I just mentioned said this, being embodied is a fundamental part of what makes us human. You cannot fully be you without a body. You cannot be, I'm sorry, you cannot fully be you without your body. It is a gift. It is part of your calling. Your way of being human includes your body and your sex. So here's the third and final point that I want to make, really beginning today and carrying it throughout our series. The story of the gospel is written within our sexuality. Now, if that is a confusing or or maybe even a mind-blowing statement, I understand When I started first thinking on this issue, I was like, no, this can't be true. But it is. Jesus takes us back to the beginning. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in taking us back to the beginning, Jesus is taking us back into a story. A story that is meant to define us. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of story is this? And if you've been a part of Mercy Hill Church, you 
you've known that we talk about the four-part story of the gospel that began with God's good creation, but that continues with the story of man's rebellion against God, humanity's rebellion against God, and banishment from his presence. Fellowship had been, had been ruptured, but then God sent his son to redeem us and to guarantee that one day the restoration of all things would come. So in saying this story is a story, it's a particular kind of story. It is a love story. So for example, when the scriptures talk about God, one of the most fundamental ways it defines God is like this. God is love. And even before the story began, this was true. God is love. And when that story began, God is love. In the middle of this story, we find ourselves in God is love. And when that story is brought to completion, we will find that God's love never ends. It is a love story. And it's interesting that even in the very first words of the Bible, we see gender being used. So for example, when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the words heaven and earth are gendered words. And if you've studied languages, you know that sometimes in language, uh, words can have gendered meanings or genders assigned to them. I, I, I learned this when I studied um, Spanish, for example, that some words are masculine, some words are feminine, and some are neuter. And the same thing goes in Hebrew. When we open up the scriptures and read these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens. That word for heavens or skies is a masculine word. And the word earth is feminine. So already there's some thoughts at work about where this story might be going. What's it going to be saying? And so let me just make this statement and try to flesh it out just a little bit. The story of the scriptures begins and ends with a wedding. We see, yes, in that first verse, heaven and earth, masculine and feminine being brought together. But at the very end of scriptures, there is another wedding. And everything in between those tells a wonderful, complicated, broken, and beautiful story. And so when we continue in the opening pages of Scripture, we're told that God created Eve from the side of man. Sometimes it's translated rib. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week. But actually that Hebrew word just simply means side. And it's used in architecture. For example, it's used in the Scriptures often to describe the architecture of the temple, a sacred piece of art. So God takes a sacred piece of art from the side of Adam and, and forms her into a woman and brings her to the man. And the man says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the writer of Genesis said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The opening pages of Scripture begins with a wedding. And if we were to fast forward to the life of Jesus, we see Jesus arriving on the scene, and he calls himself a groom. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Not together, they just, this is one of their spiritual disciplines they engaged in. And people came and said to him, that is to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
That word bridegroom is a little bit foreign to us because we don't call grooms bridegrooms this day. We've shortened that word just simply to grooms. But Jesus says, how can my disciples fast when the groom is with them? They can't fast. This is a time to rejoice and to celebrate. And if you think about the life of Jesus, that's a curious statement. Because he wasn't engaged. He never took a wife. And yet he calls himself a groom. What is he thinking? What's going on behind the scenes? What's, what's the story that he's inhabiting? The Apostle Paul, in writing to some Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus, gave instructions to them. And this is one of the things he said to, to the husbands. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and, ble- and, and without blemish. Here, Paul calls these followers of Jesus, who are husbands, to love their wives as Christ loves his wife, the church. And then he goes on to quote Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here, the apostle Paul says, for those who have eyes to see, who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, is beginning to put the pieces of the puzzle together by the Spirit of God. That what God began in Genesis chapter 1 in creating a man and a woman to bring them together in marriage, he did so because he wants to tell a story about the marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. David Platt said this, when God made man, then the woman and brought them together in a relationship called marriage, he wasn't simply rolling the dice, drawing straws, or flipping a coin. He was painting a picture. His intent from the start was to illustrate his love for his people. God created the marriage relationship to point to a greater reality. From the moment marriage was instituted, God aimed to give the world an illustration of the gospel. So when I say the The gospel is written within our sexuality. What I'm saying is that God wants us to connect the dots between the way that he created humanity as male and female and oftentimes brings them together in marriage. He is trying to illustrate something of profound truth, and that is that people like you and me are meant to find Jesus as a Savior, to be brought into his church, and one day to stand before him together as the church and to have eternal communion Union and communion with the God who loves us. So when we flip to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, this is what we hear the Apostle John saying. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus, the one called the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is at last united with his spotless bride. And he goes on and says, it was granted to her, the church, 
the community of God's redeemed, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So God set in motion at the very beginning a story about marriage and a wedding because he intends to end that story with a a marvelous, mind-blowing, celebratory wedding of Jesus with his bride, the church. And so God, through the angel, instructs John to write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is going to be an eternal celebration And you are invited to it. You and all your brokenness, you and all your waywardness, you and all your messiness, and yes, you and all your rebellion are invited to come to Jesus, the bridegroom, to receive his righteousness and to have your spot reserved for that day. So let me ask you, have you sent in your RSVP? Do you want to be a part of that eternal celebration? These are the true words of God. Back to that book I referenced earlier by Christopher West, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. He says, make no mistake, when all of the smoke is cleared and all the distortions are untwisted, the deepest meaning and purpose of human sexuality is to point to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Julie Slattery, in her book, Rethinking Sexuality, said, human sexuality is a holy masterpiece infused with spiritual significance. And she goes on to say this. Why is sexuality important to God? Because sexuality is a holy metaphor of a God who invites us into covenant with himself. Written within your sexuality are echoes of an eternal, invisible truth. While God created sexual desire to awaken our longing for love, even marriage is not the ultimate fulfillment of that desire. Marriage is the shadow, the foretaste, the metaphor of the true longing to be known, embraced, accepted, and celebrated by our Creator. This means our sexuality is infused with a significant spiritual purpose, regardless of our marital status. Our sexuality was designed by God to be a holy masterpiece, infused with significance. Now, I know you probably got all kinds of questions about that. I got some questions, too. But we're going to unpack that as we go along in this study. But let me just say right now, as I bring this to a close, when Jesus takes us back to the beginning, he's inviting you to see your life as a story connected to the old, old story of God and his amazing love for us.